So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 tonight. And uh, before I start there, um, the, the first reference we're going to have is Matthew 23, chapter 20, or chapter 23, verse 25 and 26. So you can turn there while I pray. God, thank you for this church and this body of believers. We ask, God, that um, for those uh, that don't know you here, that are here to just learn or hear about you, that uh, we, we don't misrepresent you. Um, we ask, God, that you would um, give us uh, just humble hearts and humility as we go about doing ministry. And we know that, Lord, that um, you have something greater for this community. We know that you have something greater for this world. And uh, it's just really heavy um, in hearing about what's going on in India and also what's going on in, in our modern day in regards to uh, modern day slavery and human trafficking and so many evils in the world. And we ask God that um, you would equip us to do something about it. In Jesus' name, amen. Since the uh, beginning of humanity, we've been struggling to figure out how to live so-called good lives. And in our time, it seems to be even more desperate with all the problems that we face. But really, it, it's always been a problem. And it's always been desperate. And throughout history, nothing has changed all that much in terms of our desperation on, on figuring out how we should live. And when we look at our world today, a world with so much social instability, a world with so much moral failure, it helps us face the fact that we need something, or more accurately, someone to find a solution. And to find a solution so that we can answer the question, what is it about a person that makes him or her really good? What is true inner goodness? And that someone is Jesus. A few weeks ago, we were in the Beatitudes, and I talked about how it's not about our human abilities or our human conditions that uh, determine um, our relationship with Jesus. And, and it's really all about a relationship with Jesus, not about what we're doing or our actions to try to go about proving righteousness or prove about being blessed. And Paul tells us in Romans chapters 1 through 8, we're not going to read all of that. About the redemptive act of Jesus and how that is the key to understanding goodness. And it's the person of Jesus and his death for us that makes clear what it is about God that makes him really good. And it's important for us to understand the connection between the inner workings of our inner personality and the outward manifestations of it in action so that we can build a strategy for becoming the persons of God that we know we ought to be, that God knows we ought to be. So let's start by taking a look at a couple of verses to get a better idea of what lessons Jesus is teaching us. The first one we're going to look at is in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Isn't it easy to clean the outside of a cup without washing the inside? 
I remember when I was a kid and my mom was teaching me how to wash cups. She made sure that I focused on cleaning the inside of the cup because chances were greater if I cleaned the inside really well that the outside of the cup would get clean also. So she'd say, Abba, you better clean the inside of the cup really good. I hit you with a bamboo stick. No. Totally kidding. She, she said it to me in Chinese. Um, but, but if I just clean the outside, a lot of what was stuck on the inside of the cup just remains, right? The cup's still dirty. So from drinking it, having that cup serve me, it would be tainted with something pretty foul, like the greasy scum from the rest of the dishes or, or some rotting food particle. Jesus teaches us another lesson from Luke chapter 6, verses 43 through 45. It says, For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. See, actions and words don't come from nothing. Actions and words truly and accurately reveal what is in the heart. And we can know what is in the heart of a person by how they act and what they say. So, you know, discerning the heart of a person is not actually very difficult to do at all. It's actually pretty easy. You just look at their actions. You just hear what they say. And James gives us a rhetorical question in James chapter 3, verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt water and fresh. See, what's in our heart is not a mystery. When we hear of evil deeds that people have committed, we can pretty much guess that the type of inner life and character the person that committed that evil has. A fig tree bears figs. Evil hearts bear evil, produce evil. And it's this inner life of the soul and our character that, that we must transform. And from that, behavior will naturally follow. It's not done the other way around. Proper actions don't change the heart. Just like washing the outside of the cup doesn't cleanse the inside. There has to be an intention to clean the inside, and from that, the outside gets clean. We're going to be, continue to look at the rightness of the kingdom heart. And to do this, we have to understand the progression of Jesus' teachings. Jesus cuts to the core of our true condition when we don't live life under His rule. Let's take a look at the example we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at murder. The old morality of the scribes and Pharisees taught that because you didn't kill someone, you were in a right relationship with your fellow man. But murder is not an isolated behavior. It comes from a heart filled with anger, contempt, malice. Notice how Jesus brings up anger and contempt first out of all the situations He could have brought up. Why does He do that? Because the first basic step toward having the rightness of the kingdom heart is by eliminating anger and contempt. See, anger seeks to wound someone. When someone is angry at you, it wounds you. And in turn, it makes you you angry. And it feeds upon itself, right? And then it affects more than just the people who are directly involved. Remember the 10-year-old boy this past January that got hit by a stray bullet while he was taking piano lessons on Piedon F, right across the street from the Chevron there? He's paralyzed from the waist down because the robber was angry about his will being obstructed. His will was to take money from the Chevron. It was obstructed. He's angry, right? 
So he stole money from the gas station across the street and he fired some shots, escalating from the anger to contempt to malice. See, the the robber desired to inflict harm and in turn it paralyzed a 10-year-old boy. A boy not involved in the robbery at all, just taking piano lessons across the street. And prior to the robbery, the robber was released from jail, where he wrote in an essay that helped him get released from jail, The truth is black males, especially young ones, have a harder time finding good working situations. We need to find ways to motivate young black males to face the challenges and obstacles in their way. The situations can only get worse if something is not done. Not everyone can be Michael Jordan. It sounds to me that there's an element of self-righteousness here that has allowed him to foster and harbor his anger to a point where it became this senseless rage. And to rage this way, he must have regarded himself as a mistreated person. So it's an embraced anger. It's an indulged anger. And from his quote, you notice that he's dedicated to keeping his anger alive and justifying it. He's constantly reminding himself of how wrongly he's been mistreated and that it, that is, that is what is controlling his actions. It's this evil that has resulted in a paralyzed 10-year-old who was innocently taking piano lessons. And as of September 16th, there have been 102 homicides in Oakland. How many of those homicides wouldn't have occurred if the killer chose not to embrace anger or indulge in anger? And sometimes we, we as Christians even encourage and justify anger. I've heard Christians use Jesus as an example when turning the tables of the money changers in the temple, right? But I want you to notice something about Jesus in that situation. How he righted a wrong with love, and that love never left his heart. The love always remained in his heart. He was angry, but without sin. How did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus didn't harbor anger. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 tells us, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. See, Jesus did not lead his action and live his life with anger. Jesus led his life with love. And his actions were led with compassion. And though I believe anger was present as an emotion for Jesus, it was his love that led the bold action to overturn the tables and the seats. And I believe he experienced experienced anger initially, but his actions weren't completed in anger. And there are some people who are angry for good causes. You can get angry at this human trafficking thing of 27 million slaves. And some believe that we have to be angry in order to oppose social evil. But there's a difference with leading our lives in anger and leading our lives in love. When we lead our lives with anger, we allow that anger to harbor within us. This in turn leads to contempt. It leads to malice, which gives place to the devil. And Jesus wasn't like that. There was no harboring of anger. Sure, he experienced anger. He was tempted by it, but he was self-controlled. He didn't let the emotions get away from him. He didn't let the anger to, to get, get off of his heart. His heart was directed with love. He didn't allow anger to be at the ready in his life and allow it to fester into contempt and malice by harboring it. He allowed at the trigger finger of his life, love. And notice what happens in Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. Right after he overturns the tables, right after he overturns the seats, verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
Do you think such vulnerable people would come to a man who was just raging with anger? Jesus was self-controlled. He knew what he was doing. He led with love. Like a parent that disciplines their child. We shouldn't do that in anger. Discipline should be done out of love and self-control. Like Jesus overturning tables. Yes, a bold action was necessary to take place. and, and, And sometimes a bold action is needed for us to teach a child. But we shouldn't lead our actions with anger. Our children should know that our discipline is out of love. It should be under control. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus right after he overturned the tables because they knew that Jesus was a man of love. He did what was necessary, but it didn't scare them away from seeking him. And discipline should be like that for our kids when when they feel they can come to us, even though we take a, a right action with them to right or wrong. There's nothing that can be done with anger that can't be done better without it. I'm going to use my Taekwondo students as an example. Sometimes they're, they're sparring and they're fighting each other, and one kid gets decked, like kicked in the head. Usually it's a girl in my class that hits a boy, because she's bad. So, and if they get angry after they hit, after the hit, they'll lose the fight. Guaranteed. They aren't controlled anymore. They can't see as well because their eyes are watery, they're breathing heavy, and they're just mad. <sighs> They're just like grimacing and not able to control their breathing, which causes them to tire more quickly, which causes them to have slow reflexes. They're, they're led by their anger and they just want to exact revenge, but they don't know how to go about doing it. They're just losing their control, right? Another thing that they can't do is take instruction anymore. They can't listen to my coaching anymore. All the training and all the things they learned out the door. Right? They're just randomly kicking and punching, right? Looks like a dance, more like that. And while their opponent just keeps on getting scores on them, keeps getting hits on them, right? They're coming, going crazy, and the, the guy's just like, Poof, point, Poof, point. And I just look at the scoreboard, and I'm like, oh man, four zero, five zero, six zero. he's getting killed. And they want so badly just to hit the person, they don't even care about consequences in terms of losing a match. Not only that, but it also motivates their opponent. It gets their opponent worked up and motivated, but but with the upper hand because they actually have some self-control. And as their coach, I have to calm them down. I have to help them take control of their emotions so that they can control their actions, they can control their breathing, that they can be receptive to my coaching. And oftentimes we're like that. We're so bent on getting revenge. We don't care what God says. We're not receptive to His coaching. We're not receptive to what He may say to us. We're just huffing and puffing, flailing around, not listening to what He wants. And He's saying, calm down. Let me let me talk to you. You know, the self-righteousness that we may have in our anger just provokes more anger and self-righteousness on the other side. See, anger feeds upon anger. And the kingdom life doesn't live in anger, even if it's for a just cause. The kingdom heart doesn't harbor anger even when it's for a good cause. And there are other situations we try to manage in our, in our life as well. The next situation Jesus brings up involves our most intimate earthly relationships. He's going to bring up marriage. Verse 27 of chapter 5 in Matthew. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The old morality of the scribes and Pharisees taught that adultery was defined as no intercourse. 
Well, Jesus tells us it's something more. It's not just no intercourse, but it's the it's no cultivation of lust. When people are dissatisfied with a spouse, they may meet, they may move on to find a more pleasing person to meet those desires, their desires. And Jesus' culture was no different from ours with its obsession with two primary issues that we deal with today: violence and sex. It's interesting how little has changed between the evils that were prominent in Jesus' day and what is prominent for us today. Some people think we've made such great progress as humans in regards to morality. Really? In our current age, these two issues underlie the theme, underlie the theme of almost every advertisement or any movie produced. Why? Because they appeal to the root of what Jesus said was our real problem. Uncontrolled desire. Jesus confronts a bunch of guys who thought of themselves as good and right in their sexual lives because they didn't do a specific thing forbidden by a commandment, which was sexual intercourse with another woman who wasn't your wife. But, but I want you to notice something here. Do you notice that all the elements of an actual act of adultery, other than the overt movements of the body, are there? All the heart elements are there. Usually the only thing lacking for the overt action to happen is the occasion. When the heart is set to being sexually immoral, the action will occur as occasion offers. Just like a thief who will steal if the circumstances are right. So is the adulterer who will have wrongful sex if the circumstances are right. And this usually means whether he or she can be sure they will not get found out. It means that he or she can be sure that they can get away with their immoral act without getting caught. And this is what Jesus calls adultery in the heart, even though sexual relations haven't occurred. To be right sexually before God means to be the kind of person who routinely doesn't engage his or her bodily parts, perceptions, thoughts, desires, in sexual activities, no matter how small they may seem. It can range from the smallest thing, whatever you think that is, I couldn't think of an example myself, to flirting, to actual sex, the physical act of sex. And to be right sexually is to be like Job. Job chapter 31 verses 1 through 8. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart walks after my eyes or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. Okay, what's going on here? Job is delivering his integrity plan. Job is laying out for us his policy on sexual purity. In verse 1, he's making a covenant with his eyes. He's addressing lust when he says, Why then should I look upon a young woman? And how he will not engage in it because it will be seen by God. Verse 4, Does he not see my ways and, and count all my steps? And then that will lead to deceitful actions. Verse 5, If I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, and Job, and Job, Job knows that God knows that his life is pure. Verse 6, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. Job knows what's up. He knows what guys struggle with in regards to their eyes, thoughts, and actions. 
He even lays out consequences for himself in verses 7 and 8. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart has walked away from my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my, my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yet let my harvest be rooted out. Job entailed out, detailed out, and established a practice to be a kind of person whose eyes, hands, feet, heart, everything else acts in accordance to a policy that is good and right. Do you know that temptation and sexual desire are not morally wrong? It has a vital function in life. And as long as it performs that function, it's a good and proper thing. If you only think of sex with someone you see or, or find someone attractive, that's not wrong. And that's not adultery of the heart. To be tempted sexually requires that you think of sex with someone you aren't married to, not just sex itself. And of course you have to see or have seen someone to desire them. Temptation is not wrong. Jesus experienced it himself. Now temptation shouldn't be willfully entered, but it's not wrong. Verse 28 of Matthew chapter 20, uh, Matthew 5. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is morally wrong is lust. Lust is not something that happens to people as though they were unwilling victims. Lust is a choice. It's a chosen habit. What is lust? Lust is the purposeful entertaining and stimulation of desire. It's a desire to desire. Those who look after a woman with the purpose of lusting for her, using her as a visual presence, as a means of taking pleasure in a fantasized act, and thereby committing adultery in the heart. If you indulge and cultivate desiring because you enjoy fantasizing about sex with someone, that's lust. When you desire sex in your mind and that is why you are looking, you're lusting. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 14 having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. This is describing people who, when they see a sexually attractive person, don't see the person but see themselves sexually engaging with him or her. They see adultery happening in their imagination. This is something we can choose to avoid. Some may think that lusting doesn't hurt the other person being lusted after. Like, oh, they won't know. I'm just looking at them sexually. But, but isn't that person just being used? That person's not cared for whatsoever. It's degrading humanity. It's devaluing a child of God. That is not the way of Jesus. What are you, what you are doing is, is making yourself more comfortable with treating others as objects regarding without regards to who they are as children of God. You are desensitizing yourself to what a human is by making them an object. What you're doing is detrimental to your future relationships because it'll be that much more difficult to look at and treat a significant other or spouse appropriately when, when that time comes. Jesus' teaching here is that a person who cultivates lusting in this manner is not the kind of person who is at home in the goodness of God's kingdom. Attempting to solve the problem of right sexual behavior by following laws regarding specific behaviors is what Jesus addresses with these next verses. He's presenting a logical argument in verses 29 and 30. Jesus is using a type of logical argument to kind of combat what the Pharisees and scribes were saying. Verse 20, right? 
Unless your righteousness exceeds those of the scribes and Pharisees, right? You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. To the legalistic mind, the law can be satisfied and goodness can be attained if one can avoid sinning. Absolutely true. But this is only true if you do nothing wrong and avoid sin like Jesus. How many of us can raise our hands on that one? No one? Yeah? See, the Pharisees taught that you could avoid sinning if you simply eliminated body parts that made sinful actions possible. But remember that Jesus is looking at the heart. We can't make Jesus' teachings about adultery within the heart be something about the law. That doesn't necessarily ensure that you'll have the right heart, right? It's not about making laws of righteousness. What good did it do to the scribes and Pharisees to make more laws of righteousness? None. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So the point isn't to make his teachings into more laws of righteousness, but it's about examining the condition of our inner self, of our heart, and transforming that into a heart that is like Jesus' heart. Now some of you are thinking, but Job laid out this integrity plan for himself. Yes, he did. But his action plan wasn't a set of laws to ensure righteousness or earn righteousness. His integrity plan was established to protect his heart of character. His heart was already at the point where it was at the right place. He was a man of integrity. So, so much so that God Himself is so confident in Job to specifically point him out to the devil. And I'm not against integrity plans, but I am against laws of righteousness. What's the difference? The difference is in the heart of the individual. If I make a list of things for myself to do or not do, but I don't really concentrate on changing my heart, then those laws of righteousness are just a set of legalisms. It doesn't transform my character. Now, if from my heart I want to change, and I come up with an integrity plan to support the change that I desire, that's right. But if you are com coming up with a list of legalisms to say like, oh, this will help me earn righteousness, it won't. You know, if I change the way I think, if, if I change my heart and direct it towards Jesus, I can have an integrity plan to support my changed heart. It's not a set of legalisms as much as it is a plan to support how my heart is, how my heart is moving. See, when I was in college, I thought I could battle lust by cutting all the things that caused me to lust. So I decided I wouldn't have a TV. I wouldn't have any magazines or any type of things with pictures on them. Or go to movies with, with stuff that would make me struggle. I decided that I wouldn't go to the beach anymore. And in my senior year of high school, I went every day. I was less than a half hour away from Newport and Huntington. It was a big sacrifice for me. It didn't work. All that stuff. I could have been like a pro surfer or something. But just avoiding adultery in the heart is not enough. Lusting illustrates a wrongness of the inner self that may still be there even if there isn't an outward act of adultery. You don't have to look at someone to sexually fantasize about them. Sexual wrongness is still present even when you're not looking at them directly. Lust is not dependent on sight. 
It lies in your heart. If we made up a law of righteousness, such as cut out all things that cause me to lust, it doesn't mean that if, if we obey it, that it makes us righteous. It all depends on how it's done and what else is going on in our hearts. For example, there are men who make, make it their goal not to look at women lustfully, which is the typical pharisaical mistake to try and control the act instead of changing the source. Let's say that this group of men has succeeded in, in achieving their goal. They didn't look at women for years. They didn't talk to them or come in contact with them in any way. But is this good? Is it good that they can't have a loving relationship with a woman? What this solution is saying is that women are the problem. And that men shouldn't be interested in a long-term solution. A law like that, like other laws of righteousness, are similar. They don't change who we are. Not only that, but we simply can't live by them. But an integrity plan like Job's is different in that it's supporting his already changed heart or, or a changing heart for some of us. He's already a man of integrity and character. So this is supporting his transformation. It wasn't because of his plan that he became a man of integrity and character, but it was because of a changed heart. This source of, of his lust was changed, not the causes of his lust. So Jesus is using a logical argument to show them that they're wrong in verses 29 and 30. He's showing them that solving the problem of right sexual behaviors by laws that govern behaviors, that's not going to work. That's not the way to go. Verse 29 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus is... Jesus is going to accept their belief for the sake of argument. See, the Pharisees had laws, tons of laws that they had to follow that they extrapolated from Ten Commandments, right? This is just one of them. And so he carries out their logic through to the end result, right? And it turns out to be an absurd, ridiculous outcome. Jesus' teaching here is exactly opposite from what is stated here. Jesus is showing us that the original claim the Pharisees made has to be wrong because it leads to a ridiculous result. Jesus' argument is that if this is the case, the end result will be just a mutilated stump with a wicked heart. Right? Like people who think that if they just avoid the opposite sex, they won't lust. We'll carry that through, through to the end result. What happens? Extinction. Right? You can't reproduce if you're not with the opposite sex, right? So if you think that obeying certain laws can eliminate sexual sin, you might as well be blind or maim yourself. If you pluck your eyes out, you'll still have those thoughts in your head. Ever, have you guys ever seen Scent of a Woman with Al Pacino? No one? Am I too old for that? Okay. He was blind. He lusted with his nose. Did you know that? So you cut your nose off, right? And then... Uh, you have your ears, so you're listening, you're like, oh, right? So you cut your ears off, right? Your hands cause you to sexually sin, so you cut them off. You'll find a way to use your feet, right? You cut those off. It doesn't result in a changed heart. It doesn't mean that your heart has changed. You're just a mutilated stump, just rolling your way into heaven, like, right? It doesn't work. I shouldn't have done that, I lost my place. Just, just like cutting things out of your life, right? You can't cut all the stuff that you think causes lust. 
Now, now, if it comes to like pornography or things, those obvious things to cut out, yes, cut them out. Okay, I'm talking things like beach, right? But if you don't change your heart, you may just be cutting things out of your life that are actually fun, actually good. The beach. I'm still sad about that. I, I love bodyboarding. I love playing volleyball. I loved hanging out with my friends at the beach. I was just looking at it wrong. I thought that if I, if I cut those things out, I can, I can earn my righteousness. Instead of saying like, you know, my heart, I'm struggling with these things and I want to do that. Therefore, I'm cutting those things out. That's a Job thing. I was approaching it like a Pharisee, like, oh, I want to be, I'm going to a Christian college, so I want to set everything right. I'm cutting all that stuff out. I didn't change. I I changed now. I didn't change back then. (laughs) The deeper question Jesus addresses is who you are. Not what act you did or did do or can do. Jesus is asking, what would you do if you could? What would you do if you knew that you wouldn't get caught? What would you do? Why? Because eliminating body parts won't change that. Cutting activities or things you think cause you to act a certain way won't change that. Even if you dismembered yourself to a point where you couldn't physically murder or look at somebody hatefully or lustfully or never commit adultery, your heart could still be full of anger, contempt, obsessive desire for what is wrong, lust. No matter how hard you try to stifle or suppress the action, it's still about the heart. No matter what things you cut out of your life, it's about the source of those obsessive desires. The heart is the source. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. You know, today we can't find a reason for not committing adultery. There's this prominent and very well accepted belief that sex is right with anyone you are romantically in love with. There's even a thought that if you're not romantically in love with someone, that sex is wrong. So if a married couple is having sex, but they're not necessarily romantically in love anymore, their sex is wrong. What an upside down world we live in. That's not love. That's lust. The definition of the world's so-called romantic love or being in love is no more than adultery in the heart. They're not in love. They're in lust. If you're truly in love, then, then trust, trustfully commit to one another and, and go get married first. Why should we do that? You know, we're, we're living together. We're romantically in love. Everything's good. We don't need that. Yeah, but what happens when the feelings go away? What happens when the emotions aren't there any longer? So-called being in love is more accurately portrayed as being in lust because it is dependent on emotion and feeling, which is not always present, nor is it always an accurate gauge of true love. My wife and I celebrated our fifth anniversary yesterday. Yeah. Most of the time I do have the emotion and the feelings. Seriously. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's just like, it's my wife. I've been with her for five years, you know. I can't count on the emotions and the feelings. 
I have to count on committed trust. That's my wife. We took a covenant together five years ago. I'm committed. I trust. She's committed. She trusts. We're bound. Right? We're bound by, in, and we're bound and we have an intimacy with one another, right? Intimacy is about giving to and receiving from a spouse in committed trust. That's why a marriage covenant is made. It's not solely based on feelings or emotions that come and go. Whether sexual intercourse is right or wrong isn't based on what we think of as romantic love. It's based on a committed trust. That no matter where the emotions go, committed trust is there. How do you make that committed trust? You get married. People are so hungry for intimacy, and they'll get it however they can, right? What is intimacy? Intimacy is the mutual fusion of souls so that, that they're taking each other to ever-increasing depths within one, oneself, right? With each other. And do you know what is truly erotic? Can I say erotic in a church service? What's truly erotic is the union of souls. Because we are, because we are beings of a free will. Intimacy can't be passive and it can't be forced. You have to choose to engage in intimacy. It doesn't just happen and you can't make someone be intimate with you, right? And because we're extremely finite beings, intimate, intimacy has to be exclusive. That's the way God wired us. This is the metaphysical and the spiritual reality of humanity. This is why a betrayed spouse feels the most serious and bitter violation to oneself. This is why they experience such a severe pain from betrayal. Because committed trust has been broken, shattered, and what it meant to be exclusive has been violated, stripped away. It also makes clear the desensitized and shallow condition of those who commit the betrayal. Intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we can't escape it. This has always been true, and it remains true for us today. What's so sad is that our world keeps on hammering away at the sex button, right? In hope of a little, a little intimacy that, that might just trickle out of the faucet. Come on, intimacy, come on, I'm going to hit the sex button again. And, and it doesn't happen, right? And we want, we want the quick and easy, right? We want, we want fast food instead of like the, the slow, cooked, healthy stuff, right? That fast food's junk, man. It's all done in vain. Stop eating that stuff. You're killing yourself faster than you're dying. So we, we might feel full from eating that junk, but we're not nutritiously nourished. Just like intimacy, where our culture hopes that by focusing on sex, I'm going to hit that button again, intimacy might be found. It's not coming. Right? It won't. The intimacy Jesus gives us in the kingdom is the kind of nourishment that alone will satisfy Intimacy only comes within the framework of an individualized faithfulness within the kingdom of God. And this faithfulness is violated by adultery. Adultery in the heart and adultery in the body. And the righteousness that Jesus offers us fulfills the true longing of our hearts. It fulfills the intimacy we yearn for. It satisfies the real hungry our human soul has. Hunger our human soul has, right? A longing, a yearning, a hunger. We can't escape it. Verse 31, 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. The old morality of the scribes and the Pharisees taught that if you divorce, give a certificate. 
That's all. You're good to go. And this was actually really important back then because, because the certificate proved marital status. This will, would allow her to defend against any future charges of adultery because if she didn't have it and she was caught and people accused her of adultery, she could be stoned to death. But Jesus' new morality is against divorce in the way that it was practiced then. We're gonna, let's separate here, okay? We're gonna address back then and what these verses say and then we're gonna address a modern, modern interpretation of it for us today. Back then, there were rabbinic, te- rabbinic teachings that supported divorce for almost any reason. Right? There were rabbinic, rabbinic teachings that allowed for, for divorce for like the smallest reasons that you wouldn't even, you would think that that's absolutely silly. According to Rabbi Hillel, he believed that burning food or oversalting it could justify divorce. Rabbi Akaba taught that a man could divorce his wife if he fancied a better looking woman. Back in Jesus' day, divorce was brutal for a woman. A divorced woman only had three options. She could remarry as damaged goods. She can work as a house slave. Or what was most common was become a prostitute. This is why Jesus teaches that the divorced man is forcing his wife into adultery. Divorce was never God's intent. But notice that this verse does not say that divorce is never permissible. It doesn't say that. This verse also doesn't say that divorce is required in the case of adultery. It doesn't say that either. After all things considered, you know, sometimes divorce is the right thing to do. The core of this teaching in Jesus' day was that the husband is not morally right just because he gave a certificate of divorce, right? Okay, now you're clear. No, a little bit more than that, man. Now what does it mean for us practically today? Well, for us today, it's about the hardness of heart. Hard-heartedness may make divorce necessary to avoid a greater harm. And thus it makes it permissible. And divorce, if done rightly, would be done as an act of love. It should be dictated by love and done for the good of the parties involved. Now, now saying that, I want to let you know that this is a really, really, really rare circumstance that this applies but it can. And the important question is not whether or not it's okay to divorce. I think you've gone too far already. There's some more foundational things you have to work with before you make that decision. The important question is, how can I use the resources of the kingdom of heaven to resolve difficulties with my spouse and to make our union rich and good before God? The important question is, if you were to divorce, how could you do it with a kingdom heart? with love, with concern for the honest good of all who are involved, your spouse, your children, your extended family, your friends. It's important to maintain a tender kingdom heart. You can't control the other person's heart, but you can choose how you want your heart to be. Your goodness is to exceed the goodness of the scribes and Pharisees. Kingdom hearts are not hard. And if both parties are willing and not harden. Together they can find ways to bear with each other, to speak truth to each other, to change. And oftentimes it's with great pain and distress, but the mutual intimacy and the covenant that they made can carry them through it. And note that this teaching comes after the teaching on anger, contempt, and obsessive desire, lust. 
Notice the progression. Because if the angers of, if the issues of anger, contempt, obsessive desire, lust were already dealt with in an individual, you know, few divorces would ever occur. Jesus' illustrations of behaving with a kingdom heart built on top of each other. Anger, contempt, and malice between husband and wife. You know what it does? It makes sexual enjoyment between them impossible. The intimacy is, is destroyed by anger and contempt. How many marriages are ruined because of contempt be, between a husband and a wife? It can be contempt brought about by a number of things, right? Things that are done to each other, family, whatever, right? The anger and the contempt egg each other on and, and they don't heal if they don't stop encouraging anger and contempt with each other, right? And what makes it worse is that people believe sex in such a condition can help. They believe that, oh, we're having marital problems. Let's have a baby. Oh, man, don't do that. It doesn't help. You know why it doesn't help? Because intimacy is lost. You haven't reconciled. You have to reconcile again. You have to develop the committed trust again. And when such an important need is unmet, people go towards fantasies. They look for ways to gain fame, power, money. They look to drugs and alcohol. They may go to pornography. That's why spouses go to the internet to fulfill fantasies. Not just porn. They look to go look for prostitutes or solicit sex in chat rooms, whatever else people do. This just leads to a further frustration, a further mistrust, which produces more anger, more contempt. And when that is not normal, what is not normal becomes normal. It in a healthy individual, it just kind of breeds this unhealthiness within the individual, right? What is abnormal becomes normal to them. Then hostile feelings are now even desired to become sexually stimulated. A person may even be unable to be sexually stimulated without the hostility anymore. And so they have to move towards more kinky stuff or degrading things to be more sexually aroused. Which brings more anger and more contempt, but even stronger this time between the spouses, right? And if the abnormal sexual behaviors and needs aren't met, it feeds more into the anger and more into the contempt of the unhealthy individual. It's a vicious cycle. It just escalates, right? And unfortunately, it's a cycle that I've witnessed personally while being a pastor right here. And our media loves to feed into fantasy sexuality with magazines and books and advertising and movies and television. And this just continues to feed into people's frustrations, their mistrust, their anger, their contempt. And we live in really troubling times. Never in the history of man has all this stuff been made so easily accessible to us. We need to pray for future generations because our sons and our daughters will struggle, struggle more than our generation to, to define how to appropriately look and treat each other. The more you face and eliminate your anger, contempt, malice, the more you're likely going to be able to behave with love and respect towards someone you find sexually attractive or a spouse that you want to divorce. And if you remove the unrestrained anger and contempt from your life, you will have rid of the greater part of wrong acts that actually get carried out. Imagine how many divorces would occur if anger, contempt, obsessive, fantasized desire were eliminated. A lot. A lot of them would be. Imagine the type of people we can be if we worked on what is going on in our heart rather than worry about how we looked on the outside if we concerned ourselves with cleaning the inside, which is what God wants us to do every day rather than the outside. 
If we came up with an integrity plan like Job, not, not a legalistic righteousness, laws of righteousness like the Pharisees, that if we list them out, that we think that that'll earn us righteousness. No, like Job, our heart is changing. Therefore, I need to kind of protect what my heart is changing towards. I'm going to do this now, right? Now that I do this, I'm protecting it, and I'm moving towards a kingdom heart. That's okay. Righteousness is not opposed to effort. Righteousness is opposed to a mentality of earning, but it's not opposed to effort. It's good to try to be righteous. But just don't think that because you're acting a certain way, that you are. It's about the heart, right? And next week we're going to look at how Jesus moved from the most intimate of interactions, marriage, that what we covered today, to the most ordinary ones next week, such as keeping our word, facing people who, do, who don't like us. Next week we'll look at coercion, manipulation, retaliation, which are not characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. Jesus, our master teacher, offers us a life of intimacy, of peace, through a kingdom heart filled with love, a righteousness that comes through discipleship, a discipleship to Him, Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. God, how, how so badly we need You. It's so easy for us to focus on the outside, to focus on um, exterior results and, and try to hide behind a facade of action when inside we're absolutely rotting. And I ask, Lord, that we would focus on what is happening in our heart more so than just trying to do a correct action or a proper action. We ask, Lord, that those of us who are struggling with this, um, that we would ask you in prayer and in faithful faithfulness on our part and faith on your part to answer us in our prayers, that you would be able to deliver us from lying to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.